Well, folks, uh, it is time to have a guest we've had on our show before, and uh, I thought this would be a perfect time to have the one and only Malcolm Geit come back on our show. He's an English poet, Anglican priest, author, recording artist, and beer lover. And uh, we'll, we'll get him on right now. Uh, Malcolm, sir, whereabouts are you in England at this very moment? So at this very moment, I'm uh, happily ensconced in my study in, in the house we live in, in the village of Linton, which is about 12 miles outside of Cambridge, where I work as a chaplain at one of the colleges. So uh, we've got it all nice and nice and snug now, and uh, the curtain's drawn, and um, it's it's getting very nice and warm and cosy as we get ready to entertain family for Christmas. Beautiful. My no. study uh, lined with books, but also has one or two... Uh, bottles in it as well right right well you need to have some coca-cola or pepsi every once in a while of course yes. yeah. <laughs> uh, malcolm malcolm guide is a beloved english poet and priest renowned for his thoughtful and popular revival of the sonnet form he currently resides just outside of cambridge where he serves as a chaplain of girton college he is the author of nine books and a new cd songs and sonnets and Malcolm travels around Great Britain and North America giving lectures, concerts, and poetry readings. And today, Malcolm will share some of his Christmas poetic works from his book, uh, Waiting on the Word, a poem a day for Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. Uh, or maybe just something else he's pulled from his shelf or his drawer or his or his book or, I don't know, his memory. And, uh, and, and we'll also share maybe something from Seven Whole Days, 63 lines of poetry and 63 paintings inspired by the Genesis account of creation. Uh, artist Faye Hall has taken Malcolm Geit's poetic sequence, Seven Whole Days, and turned it into a sumptuous visual celebration of God's good creation. Uh, Geit's uh, sequence of seven poems each celebrate a day of creation and finally the Sabbath day of rest. And uh, Hall has taken the poems and reimagined them line by line in a series of beautiful meditations on how God's glory shines out in the world. This is a book you can share with your children, use for your own private prayer, or share in a wider circle, a book to which you'll return to time and time again and find new depth and detail. Uh, there, that's all the promotional blurby stuff. How, right. how are you doing today? So I'm, I'm okay. Uh, I'm uh, sort of... I had just actually come back from Canada. I was doing a, a tour with, with Steve Bell, which was thrilling in lots of ways, not least because we started in um, in in uh, a place in Ontario where uh, I actually did spend part of my youth. You know, I could sing with Neil Young. There is this town in North Ontario, <laughs> but in fact it was South Ontario. Uh, it was Dundas on the fringes of Hamilton. So I actually had a little bit of a sort of um, connect back to my teenage years. Uh, and then the great tour, but I've now kind of come home from all of that, yeah. uh, and uh, and uh, just getting ready to keep keep Christmas with the, with the family and the, and and the church here. But I'm 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 well. I'm exhilarated with for having uh, having crisscrossed Ontario and the prairies in a sort of uh, four wheel drive with a fine singer songwriter and um, you know plenty of stories to tell. Oh, I can imagine. Point. I can imagine. Um, tell me about boarding school. I went to boarding school. Uh, my last year there, it burned down, and that's all I'm allowed to say. Tell me about your boarding school experience. Oh, oh well, it, I mean, to be honest, it wasn't very good. My my, my actual, the, my school, the day school, as it were, where most of the, the boys went to the day school, was actually a very good school, and I got a great education out of it. But it had this, uh, uh, to be honest, slightly dysfunctional small boarding house of the sort of, you know, kids who couldn't go home sort of thing. And, and I was very, very homesick when I first went. And, uh, yeah, I found it quite a dark place. Uh, you know, I didn't get on with all the kind of rules and regulations. And, you know, it just seemed unfair that when everybody else got to go home, 
home. I was in some sense still at school. Yes. Things got better when we got into sixth form, which would be like the last two years of high school. Basically, by that time, I'd sort of discovered poetry and beer, and I realized they were a fantastic combination if you wanted to go away from where you were. So, uh, so, so it became more tolerable then, you know. So true. Uh, you know, I had a very, I would say that would be a great word to summarize my experience at, at boarding school as well. It just had this overbearing molasses of darkness on it. Uh, and yep. I remember I dreaded, I see you go home on the weekends and on Sunday night having family dinner, I was just completely depressed having that last meal before yeah. I would get driven back to boarding school again every week. Oh, it was horrible. Well, I didn't even I didn't even get to kind of come home at weekends. I was stuck there the whole term. And indeed, even through the Easter holidays, I only came back because during my kind of teenage, you know, dark and turbulent teenage year, home was Canada. Right. My dad was a professor at my at that point. So, but he'd sent me back to, to England, you know, to school, so I wouldn't forget that I was English, you know. And, um, <laughs> but for me, you know, the yearning to get out of there and sort of touch ground, you know, and get back to Canada and suddenly, you know, suddenly then there was, there was you know, Neil Young and the band and Joni, and I felt a whole lot better, you know. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, listen, before we get into a little bit more uh, banter, shall we say, uh, could you do a little reading for us, Malcolm Geit? Yeah, sure. Let me let me do this. Um, this is uh, in the kind of church calendar. It happens to be that t- today there's a the, the the sort of prayer that's set is is Oh Emmanuel, Oh God, come with us, come with us. And that's I wrote a sequence of seven poems about the really strange images, the beautiful images in that hymn that we sometimes sing, Oh Come, Oh Come, Emmanuel, which is very mysterious hymn. I mean, it's got the idea of, of asking God to come as a key and as as a flame and as a light, you know, it's very interesting. Poem. So this is the poem that I wrote that actually went with the thing for today. And it's about yearning. It's not about kind of rinky-dinky little tinsley lights and Christmas bling and, you know, jolly sounds of sleigh bells vaguely, you know, uh, sort of orchestrating your gloom. It's actually about woundedness hmm. and need. Nice. So here it goes. It's called O Emmanuel. O come, O come. And be our God with us, O long-sought withness for a world without, O secret sea, O hidden spring of light, come to us, wisdom, come, unspoken name, come, root and key and king and holy flame, O quickened little wick, so tightly curled, be folded with us into time and place. Unfold for us the mystery of grace and make a womb of all this wounded world. O heart of heaven beating in the earth, O tiny hope within our hopelessness, come to be born, to bear us to our birth, to touch a dying world with new-made hands and make these rags of time our swaddling bands. Wow, nice. That boy can write. So that, yep. that's a sonnet. Sonnets are my thing. Sonnets are my thing. Is that going to be your epitaph? Yeah, it could possibly be. Actually, you know, you think about epitaphs. I actually, I, I think I quite like as an epitaph a line from a, a song by the great band Over the Rhine. Uh, I quite like this on my tombstone. It would just say, whoever brought me here is going to have to take me home. I like that. Oh, That's yeah. really good. <laughs> That's really good. I also like what um, uh, Groucho Marx has on his. Do you know that one? Yeah. No, I don't know that one. His epitaph is, 
I told you I was sick. Uh, that's very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it actually worked out that way, but he said that would be it. Yeah, it's like the guy. You know, you know, there's a there's a tombstone somewhere in England where, where um, obviously the guy that was engraving the 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 quotation on the stone like just didn't measure the letters well, so he ran out like he was just one letter short for the for the saying. So he thought, oh well, never mind. I'll, I'll just leave it as it is. And so the, it says, you know, here rests so and so, and then it says, Lord, she was thin. She was thin. Yeah, instead of thine. I didn't even get that. Thine. That's so funny. Easier to get up to heaven if she's thin. Yeah, it is. You can get through the gates. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, straight is the way and narrow the gate. All that, yeah. If you had to choose, Malcolm, if you had to choose one one of these two gentlemen to have a pint with, would it be J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis? Only one. Oh, man, that's such a hard choice. I think the first thing I have to say is usually you would find them together both having a pint. So, yeah. you know, the chances might be in. But I think if I had to take the choice, I would probably take Lewis. I love them both. But Lewis, I think, would be more forthcoming about his writing and his whole thing. Talking was a little bit more shy and withdrawn and secretive and less likely to kind of give you the inside track. Hmm. Um, also, I feel like I've been having conversations with C.S. Lewis in my head almost ever since I first read his books, because he's not in a great guy to be persuaded by. But frankly, I find he's a great guy to disagree with, because even if you think, no, no, you're wrong about this, he still puts his finger where it hurts. You know, he still gets to the nub of the matter. So hold on. Are you saying, did you just say that you agree theologically more with Tolkien than with Lewis? No, no, not quite. No, I, I mean, I like them both, actually. No, I, I just, what I did say is that there are some ways and in some places where Lewis is making a point vociferously in one of his books, and I disagree. And I still find him compelling, but I think he's wrong on that point, or I want to, I want to argue back. Mm -hmm. And he's one of the authors I've most wanted to have in the room with me, partly because I know that if I did argue back, he'd be delighted. I, as it, it so happens that my father-in-law, my, 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 uh, wife's father was was one of his students in Oxford and was quite sort of you know um, shy at first because Lewis was the great man and he was holding forth and he didn't think Lewis was paying much attention until one day he disagreed with him and a look of sheer delight came on Lewis's face and said oh tell me more you know and then he got into a, a kind of argument about a point of literature and Lewis was on fire and loving it you know and, and, and wanting to be disagreed with because he enjoyed argument for the sake of it. So as I say, sometimes, I mean, I like Lewis's work a lot, but occasionally he'll make a point where I think I, I'm not with you on that. Like, for, just to give one an example, I mean, uh, there's millions of examples of things that I think are great, but there's a famous, indeed notorious moment in his book on the problem of pain, the whole issue of how, why is there suffering in the world and what does that say about whether there's a God or whether there's a good God or what can we make of it? Mm -hmm. And there's, uh, it's full of very good things, but there's a, a really unfortunate moment in my view, or a very unfortunate metaphor, where he says that pain is God's megaphone for rousing and calling the attention of a deaf soul or a deaf word. Deaf word, uh, yeah. world. world, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I actually think the idea that God is deliberately turning up the volume, you know, of our pain because we've been distracted by something else, that's not the God I feel I encounter in Jesus. That's interesting because I have, I guess I have sort of hunkered down on that saying for years. 
as a as a way i got to think this through now again because i'm in i'm in a different space than i was uh, certainly 15 years ago but i used to always quote that quote uh, pain is god's megaphone to a deaf world basically is you know summarized version of the quote um and so yeah what is that actually saying is that saying that god causes uh, you know, now we're into does Doug, does God cause or allow, and if He allows, is that yeah. causing? You know, that whole thing. And also, there's the the whole question of 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 the megaphone. To be honest, a megaphone isn't a perfect. I mean, you know, a megaphone amplifies the voice, but it also distorts and dehumanizes it, doesn't mm. it? Yes. Yeah. Now, interestingly, just to tell, I mean, one of the people that or, that Lewis often quotes from and draws from and whom he would regard as a master is the great saint augustine mm-hmm. now augustine more often talks about god whispering than he does about god shouting yes and one of the things i just i used to be a high school teacher right you know in a big state high school and the kids didn't want to be there and i had to learn how to control classes and stuff like that <laughs> and one of the things i learned in my first year when the kids were writing rough shadow than me is that don't shout at kids especially if there's 30 of them and only one of you because they can shout louder than you can yep want to be heard whisper bring the voice right down let something slip that they might have just missed and they want to tune in and hear it again you know that's the way to go and to be honest in my own spiritual life that's the way god often reaches me is through through the a kind of voice or a whisper that that comes through his world in kind of gentle ways. Actually, this is the danger of, of talking to a poet. He then says, oh, that reminds me of a poem. Um, so can I, can I read your poem uh, on, on the saying, I, I am the light of the world? Please right? do, please. Which we'll definitely be hearing over Christmas and everything like yeah, yeah. Light, okay? Um So here's, here's what I write. I see your world in light that shines behind me, lit by a sun whose rays I cannot see. The smallest gleam of light still seems to find me or find the child who's hiding deep inside me. I see your light reflected in the water or kindled suddenly in someone's eyes. It shimmers through translucent leaves in summer or spills from silver veins in leaden skies. It gathers in the candles at our vespers. It concentrates in tiny drops of dew. At times, it sings for joy. At times, it whispers. But all the time, it calls me back to you. I follow you upstream through this dark night my savior source and spring my life and light hmm. very nice okay so that's kind of subtle call rather than the megaphone in your ear yeah right? no question no question um on the line here with Malcolm Geit, who, of course, uh, is you know, quite a revered English poet, Anglican priest, author, recording artist, uh, among other descriptors that we've used. Uh, uh, Malcolm, if you were consoling somebody in the middle of the Christmas season who was blue, who was experiencing darkness, who was not looking forward to it because of personal tragedy or trauma or some kind of familial issue... What, what would be your go-to? What yeah. would you say or read or share with somebody? Okay. Well, first thing, I'm glad you asked that because I think a lot of people are incredibly blue over this Christmas season. And if you've lost somebody, if you've been bereaved or, you know, 
this is when the kind of the wound is opened again and you feel the pain of it. And it's all the worst because everybody else is kind of jollying around and, you know, saying all these words about family, which maybe, you know, are actually a source of pain or, or grief to you. Um, the first thing I'd say in answer to that question, though, is I don't think I would have a go-to immediate, like, here's my standard thing, let me, you know, prescribe you this. Um, in fact, I think that is the very problem, that people have got these off-the-shelf, nicely, you know, packaged little solutions, or, you know, or they read you that poem, Footsteps, or whatever, you know, and it's all, do you know what I mean? It's kind of one-size-fits-all, and I don't think that's the way. I think the first thing you need to do is just give somebody time and listen, and if they're they're sad, you actually have to honour their sadness, okay? One of the things I think is unfortunate about comforting people around Christmas is that, you know, who is really being comforted? Is it sometimes it's the comforter who wants everybody to be happy exactly. at Christmas? Exactly. And he's kind of coercing the person who is in lamentation to kind of, you know, get with the programme and be happy. And actually, I think this is a, a larger cultural problem. I mean, as it ha happens, I've just produced a, a, an anthology of poetry about grief and lament called Love Remember, and, uh, which is poems of love, loss, lament and hope. And part of the reason why I did it was that I feel there's, particularly in the area of bereavement, a real pressure on people to kind of cheer up too quickly. Hmm. At the core of it, I would say, and this is, I definitely would say this to somebody who said, I feel terrible, I know I should be feeling happy at Christmas, but I just feel awful. One of the things I would say to them, if they're lamenting the loss of somebody, particularly somebody, you know, that's died, is I say that lamentation is itself an expression of love. That when you love somebody, one of the things you do is you say to them, I love you so much that I will risk the agony of losing you. You know, I won't keep my heart to myself. I'll put it out there. And then if you go, it'll be blown wide open. And that's part of what I offer you. And to feel the pain of it when somebody's gone is itself an a necessary part of loving. Hmm. I mean, in the marriage service itself, at the, at the absolute key of the vows, what does it say? It doesn't say, till we just groove on down into an eternal sunset. It <laughs> says, till death us do part. Yeah. I know I'm going to take that pain on one day, and that's part of what I offer you. So people who are in deep grief over the loss of someone they love ought to be honoured because they are continuing in their loving and not sort of jollied along and say, hey, okay, your husband's died, but, you know, maybe we could take you out on a blind date next week. You know, that approach is not helpful. <laughs> Awkward. Well said. Are you still there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very, very well said. I'm, I'm sorry, we had a button pushed here on the uh, on the uh, iPad. We were all laughing in studios. You delivered that. That's so, I mean, it's so true. There's so many people. And look, I'm a hospital chaplain, and I encounter so many other chaplains. Uh, you know, and I, I, I appreciate what they do, and they probably do some things a lot better than I do. But I come across so many of them who just want to um, comfort the person so that they're not uncomfortable. And you nailed it. Mm. Also, I think one of the things that happens very early in grief is that, is that um, you know, it's a necessary stage of grief. We're so shocked that we go into a kind of denial. You know, we say, like, this can't really have happened. Yeah. And it's often just at that point that people sort of show up at funeral directors and all of that. And I think sometimes these people who are in this kind of world are complicit in that denial. I, I think you guys may not have that here, but, but uh, over there. But in England, we have a thing that's very widespread. It's attributed to a a canon of, well, correctly attributed to a canon of St. Paul's Cathedral, a guy called Henry Scott Holland, writing at the beginning of the, the last century. And it's a passage which often gets printed on, like, bereavement consolation cards, and it's quite often read in, in, in um, funerals and stuff. And it starts, 
death isn't and this is the actual quotation right death is nothing at all it does not count i've only slipped away into the next room nothing has happened everything remains exactly as it was i am i and you are you and the old life that we lived so fondly together is untouched unchanged you know well wouldn't that be great but actually that's not the case no and this is always like canon henry scott holland and i was so like frustrated by this piece and that i decided to go and find it and uh, look it up and find the original context and i discovered it was from a sermon this guy preached i mean after the death of king edward actually and and he preached in st paul's cathedral in 1911 and uh, all or thereabouts and um i the actual sermon says the exact opposite of that right that bit that's quoted is in the sermon and then he goes on like, you may be tempted to think this, you know, and it'll give, bring you a brief comfort, but we know it's not true. So in the same sermon, he goes on to say, death is the supreme and irrevocable disaster. It's the impossible, incredible thing. Nothing leads up to it. Nothing prepares for it. It simply traverses every line on which life runs, cutting across every hope which, on which life feeds, every, every uh, intention which gives it significance. It makes all we do here meaningless and empty. Wouldn't you love to hear a guy from the pulpit say, I, I have felt that? Yeah. Yep. And then he goes on to say, okay, we've got these two insights, this feeling that true life and true love must continue somewhere, and this sense of utter helplessness, of something something, cutting across and hurting. How do we hold those two things together? And that's what the sermon's about. And he goes on, first of all, to say that the one place you can go if you really want to hear people crying out in absolute pain and agony about the fact of death is the bible he says scripture cried out long ago we cry in our angry protest in our bitter anguish and the ancient trouble reasserts its ancient tyranny and uh, then he goes on to say okay i'm going to turn to jesus not as a quick fix comfort but as a picture of somebody who went through the agony as well who wept at the death of his friend and then I'm going to find that God has been through this agony too. God has honored my agony with his presence and his feeling yeah. and journeyed with me through it. Yes, in the end, there is an Easter day and there is, a, there is an Easter to meet Good Friday. But if your Good Friday is a long Good Friday, then God is in there with you. And it doesn't need some other guy to come and go, hey, come on, isn't it about time for Easter now? You go through it for as long as it takes. And he doesn't just meet you on the other side. He walks through it with you. And that's the missing element, I think, in sometimes offering comfort. Really, really well said. Really well. Boy, you're, you're very easy to listen to. Uh, and yet, having said that, we've run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Malcolm, listen, I appreciate you very much. And I'm so glad you were part of our, our Christmas Day show. Uh, what you said well, is I'm, exactly I'm, what I'm, needed to be said during the show today. It's like a sort of little visit back to Canada, having had a great time. And I'm, I'm thrilled to work with these people, like Steve Bell that I was with. But also, you mentioned at the beginning, this fantastic painter, Faye Hall, I met through. She's just done this magical thing with my poetry. I've read it. It's great when one art meets another, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, no, no. best see you in yours for Christmas. I hope that when you, when you stagger down the stairs with all those goodies and the ice cream tubs falling out of your hands for the people in the foyer, that they have a great time. <laughs> Thank you. I hope so as well. <laughs> I hope so as well. Malcolm Guy, Merry Christmas, sir. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.